Greetings again, everyone. The other day, I saw a group of school children on my television set, happy, excited, acting like school children anywhere. Their teachers were there with them. They were obviously having a very festive occasion and all very excited about it. They were festooned with placards and banners and posters, and one very cute little girl even had her sign upside down. And so the teacher had to help her turn it right side up, stop the blockade, it said. And the school children were in front of the United States Embassy in Baghdad, demonstrating against the American and United Nations presence in the Gulf. To what extent does this current Gulf crisis come across to you as an American? Now, in my own case, I was born in Oregon. I grew up in Oregon, and I remember very well in my middle teenage getting most of my geography and history from the daily newspapers because we were engaged in World War II. I was 15 when it was over. I well remember VE Day when we thought the teachers would let us off, and so the entire school, 1,200 strong, took to their cars and trucks and went down to Main Street parading back and forth to celebrate when VE, victory in Europe, had come to pass. Of course, now we knew we could turn all of our attention to the Japanese, and VJ Day was not to be for some months yet after dropping the atomic bomb. Well, the teachers didn't let us off that day. The entire school, or most of us who went downtown, were treated as absentees or having played hooky. I remember so well seeing the president come on a motion picture screen when RKO Pathé News would show us, allegedly, what was happening overseas. Of course, during that day there was tremendous government censorship. It was almost tacitly done. There was not an imposition of censorship, per se, because we were supposed to have a free press. But never in my entire lifetime did I see FDR seated in a wheelchair. Always I saw him with a shot of the bust, or I saw him standing at a podium, but I never saw anybody help him out of his wheelchair or help him with his crutches or help prop him up at the podium. I only saw him standing or seated. Whenever we would see FDR or Winston Churchill or even Joseph Stalin's face flashed on the silver screen back in the 1940s, everybody in the movie theater would stand up and applaud. At the end of every motion picture, we would see the American flag. At the beginning of it, they played the national anthem. You went into a motion picture theater in 1942-43, ladies and gentlemen, the national anthem, and you stood and they played the national anthem and you sang it lustily at the top of your lungs. And then they played a movie. It could have been a war movie, it could have been simply a musical, a western, or some other kind of entertainment. I remember so well the very first Rose Parade I ever saw. Twenty-four matched Palominos at the head of that parade behind the marshal's car, every one of them carrying a huge American flag. And shortly behind them came the U.S. Marine Corps marching band with a marching drill unit right behind it, red, white, and blue dress uniforms, 24 matching blonde horses with white manes with those flags. Everybody in the stands came to their feet. I'm as patriotic as the next person, perhaps a lot more so than most, probably a great deal more so than the Vietnam generation, the generation of baby boomers and others who have been born since, because of my upbringing and because of my point of view. 
because of the fact that I virtually could not wait to get into the military service myself and because of the fact that I was in the U.S. Navy during the Korean War. I suppose these and other things have made me Garner Ted Armstrong American. But when you view what is happening in the Gulf, what is your point of view? And can you appreciate another point of view? Do you view it as an American, as a Tennessean, a person from Arkansas or Texas or California, or do you view it or attempt to view it as if from a citizen of the kingdom of God looking down upon the earth with the spirit, the mind, and the attitude, the compassion of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, looking at those little Arab children, looking at the ridiculous signs placed in their hands by their teachers, looking then at the adult generation and at their leaders, and just back off for a minute and leave your prejudices and leave your xenophobia and leave your racism and leave your nationalism and indeed your patriotism behind and divorce yourself from all of that and look at it as if from heaven itself as Almighty God must see the Gulf crisis and all of these people over there. What would you say about a religion that had as its tenets there is only one God, and God, he is God. He is omniscient, he is omnipresent, all-seeing, all-knowing, everywhere present. He is the creator God. We eschew, we reject evolution. He is a compassionate God. He is kind, he is just, he is forgiving. What would you say to a religion that demanded of its adherents absolute surrender, a religion which by its very tenet, which by its name, meant surrender and derived its concept from a word which actually is used in an ancient language of the sacrifice, the near sacrifice, the intended sacrifice of Isaac on the part of his own father Abraham, who was completely surrendering to the will of God, no matter how unthinkable that act may have seemed to him at the time. What would you think about a religion that absolutely rejects the concept of immorality, of licentiousness, of X and R-rated motion pictures, of what we know in the Western world as entertainment? Even PG-13 is rejected, which absolutely rejects alcoholism, which eschews divorce which promulgates a strong family unit with the father and the mother in definite roles and the children in subservience to those parents, which encourages hard work, thrift, which encourages every concept of what we know to be Christian charity and which especially emphasizes every individual, regardless of color, is a brother that all human beings of that very same religion who acknowledge God, he is God, the creator, are automatically brothers in a religion which has probably come much further than any other religion in the history of mankind to solve the problem of color, which is virtually colorblind. Well, I'm talking about the religion of every seventh man, every seventh woman. I'm talking about the religion of Islam, 
Because the religion of Islam, the word Islam, means to submit. And it comes from an ancient verb, as I said, that is used in Arabic language that had to do with the submission of Abraham when he was about to sacrifice Isaac. Now, we're very familiar, and right now we have another judge following the Bork fiasco who is being interviewed by our Senate committee and is soon to go before the full Senate for a vote for confirmation for the U.S. Supreme Court. They want to try to, you know, foreguess or pre-guess every decision he might eventually make, especially Roe versus Wade, with regard to abortion. So they're asking him every kind of hypothetical question you can imagine. Questions they have asked him have zeroed in on his concept of the separation of church and state. Now, I'm so keenly aware of the separation of church and state that I resent it when Friday afternoon I'm on the golf course and the nearby church in my neighborhood, which is non-denominational, plays a lot of religious songs on its chimes that throws off my golf swing. To me, that's a violation of the principle of separation of church and state. I'm out there in a secular activity, and a stupid church is playing religious music and broadcasting it on a giant loudspeaker where it's reverberating, scaring the birds out of the trees, sending the ants deep in their nests, and bothering my swing. I'm just kidding you, of course. I'm just telling you that the separation of church and state is something very dear to American hearts. We haven't really progressed to the point to where we truly have separated church and state, or we wouldn't still have blue laws by the hundreds. The Baptists wouldn't dominate the Bible Belt. You would still be able to buy a beer before 12 o'clock on Sunday, etc., 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 but by and large, in the United States, we believe in a concept of the separation of church and state. Not so in Iraq, in Iran, all across North Africa, in all of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, and any other Islamic state. It is all one socio-economic, religious, theocratic community. What about a religion which acknowledges no priesthood, which says there is no intermediary between you and God, which is a religion like a lay religion, where every man is the equal of every other man and can achieve contact with God directly? What about a religion which, have five, which has five basic dogmas and five basic religious duties? There is no God but one, of course they call him in their Arabic language, Allah. Then they say, and there is no prophet but Muhammad, or Muhammad is his prophet. That's the second concept of Islam. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Now, if you or I, as white-skinned people, went over to Iraq, as many American women have done and have married Iraqi men, and they go before a mullah, and they say, either in their language or the Islamic tongue, the Arabic tongue, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet, presto, they are Islamic. They are converts. That is all that is necessary, is to profess orally, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. And that's also the first concept of the dogma of Islam, and one of the five religious duties that should be done in a daily, weekly, monthly, annual basis, where a person professes orally his concept. Now, we in the United States are anonymous religionists. We're anonymous Christians. I walk down here to butchers, or I go into the cafeteria, drive my car down the street. The person in the car next to me does not know if I'm Catholic, Protestant, or Jew. They don't know if I'm Church of God International or Worldwide Church, Seventh-day Adventist, Baptist, 
or who knows, Lithuanian, Dutch Orthodox. It doesn't matter. They can't tell because there is no outward manifestation. You ever notice that the Arabs are not only proud, but they're certainly not ashamed of their religion? Because they wear it like a garb. The second religious duty of every adherent to Islam is prayer five times a day. At dawn, at noon, in the mid-afternoon, about 3.30 or 4, at sunset, and then again at full nightfall. That's why we used to joke when we're staying in the office over in Ramallah, in the eastern part of Jerusalem, and you hear from the minaret over there in the tower the loudspeaker, and the, the fellow is calling to prayer. It's just echoing all over the buildings. It goes on about seven times. Any kind of changes tone goes somewhere else, comes back around. Well, you can read in the Encyclopedia Britannica what he's doing. He's saying four times, there is no God but Allah. Then three times, Muhammad is his prophet. And then twice something else, and twice something else, and he completes the statement with a call to prayer, and then he says, by concluding, there is no God but Allah. And at the conclusion of that call to prayer, which is a monotonously repeated broadcast from the minarets and the towers all over Arabic cities, every citizen in the country knows exactly where Mecca is in relation to the corner of his living room, and he gets on his Persian prayer rug, and he skids on his forehead on that rug, completely prostrate, and he repeats endlessly these prayers. Now, they have no rituals in the sense of, uh, like, mysteries, or weeping statues, or relics, or priests, or nuns, or special orders, but they do have many, many sects, over 74 of them. Some people number them up into the hundreds, but that depends upon your point of view. And they do have one requirement that I'll come to in a minute which must occur only once in your lifetime, and that's very satisfying when people do that. But other than that, those five times per day are what is required in prayer. I have, as you know, interviewed Anwar Sadat and spent several hours with him personally on at least two visits, and he did have, he used to say that many devout Arabs had foreheads like the knee of an elephant. Well, they really did. They had actual calluses, literal calluses. We used to have sermons where ministers would get up and make people feel very, very embarrassed if they didn't have calluses on their knees. And they would say, are your knees calloused? And you'd feel your knees, especially the women, you know, they don't want their knees to be calloused. And uh, you would be a little embarrassed if you hadn't prayed enough to have calluses on your knees. Anwar Sadat had a calloused forehead. They painted pictures of him with this reddish spot. It was actually a piece of skin that was very, very tough and would keep wearing off about like the bottom of your heel, right in the middle of his forehead. So five times a day they pray. Now the third religious duty is almsgiving. Nothing wrong with that. They say you must give to the poor. And that you always must remember the poor. That you need to give to beggars and so on. It used to be formerly uh, a very formal thing many, many years ago. But now it's pretty much left to the individual. The fourth is fasting. They say in the Koran that it's efficacious to fast. You must fast. It's to fast to do what? Well, to get closer to God. To remove all worldly cares. To realize your vulnerability. To get close to God. That's what they say. Now, they have formalized fasting in Ramadan. You've heard of Ramadan, but unfortunately many years ago some leader in the Arabic community decided that they would go to the lunar month, so Ramadan just goes right on through the year, and it must be very difficult in the middle of August over there in the desert to fast from morning until night for the entire month. 
for one month, they can eat every day, but they got to stop eating by dawn, and they can't begin eating again until sunset, the month of Ramadan. So in Islam, they fast for a whole month, but they only fast during the daylight hours. And then they can eat at night and get up and eat real early at 3 o'clock in the morning and then quit eating and brush their teeth and wait for dawn and then not eat again until dark. And, of course, it goes right on through the solar year because it is a lunar month. And the fifth and last responsibility is that once in a person's lifetime, either he must or he could have a surrogate whom he pays, go to Mecca and have a pilgrimage which requires him to walk between two holy hills throw seven stones at a couple of little pillars that are supposed to represent Satan that actually date way back to pre-Islamic heathen Arabic customs, and do many other things, including go seven times around the holy place, the hot there, whatever it's called, and then kiss the sacred black rock, and so on. And once they have done that, then they have added to their name the Arabic title Hajj, H-A-J-J, actually two J's, but it's pronounced Hajj which means the hajira, or it means in our language, the pilgrimage. So by title, an Arab who has been to Mecca is like Pilgrim Ted, or Pilgrim Bill, or Pilgrim Joe, or Pilgrim George. And for the rest of your life, in your community, all the other people who have not yet had the money, not been able to be sponsored, have never been able to go to Mecca for their pilgrimage, look up to and respect the person who is called the Hajj. I highly recommend to you if you want to really get inside the Arabic mind and you want to understand the Arabs in Palestine especially and their relationship to the Jewish communities in the West Bank, the Golan Heights, and the Gaza Strip, I highly recommend the Leon Uris novel called The Hajj. Just V and then H-A-J. You can find it in B. Dalton or Crown or some other bookstore. I highly recommend it. Incredibly educational book. Now, having become virtually a sixth religious duty of these people is jihad, and you all know what that is, holy war. But you see, from the earliest concepts of Muhammad himself, everywhere in Islam is a land of peace. It's just peaceful, everybody is at peace. That's why the Pentagon, that's why the, house, the White House miscalculated a couple, about a month, six weeks ago. I'll explain that. That's why such dismal lack of understanding of obvious blatant intelligence reports and frantic visits by the Israelis and other people and even spy satellite pictures that told them that 150,000 troops were massed on the Kuwaiti border did not shake or disturb the White House or the Pentagon because they had a mindset. Because you see, in all Islamic lands, every day when you meet a fellow or a brother, you say to him, peace. Like the Jews say, Shalom, well, it's Salim, but it's another word that goes with it, peace be unto you, in the Arabic. Because their religious concept is that everywhere in the Arabic world is like you build a wall, and around on the other side is India, and Bangladesh, and China, and Russia, and Turkey, and so on, and the Mediterranean, and down here in Middle Africa, and the Whites, and the Americans, and the British, and the Germans, and the Dutch, and all the other people. But that wall contains all of Islam. And inside all of Islam, there is nothing but peace. Because once you have achieved the knowledge of Allah, and you've acknowledged that Muhammad is his prophet, and you conform to these five religious duties, and you accept the five religious dogmas of the Koran, and you're a devout Islamic Mohammedan, as they used to call them in Great Britain years ago, 
then everywhere in Islam there is nothing but brotherhood and peace. But perpetually, where that wall ends, those who live inside that protective wall are attempting to push that wall outward to absorb the infidels. And the infidels are you and me and everybody else outside Islam who don't accept Muhammad as the only prophet of the only God whose name is Allah. And there are various methods by which we may be converted to Islam, one of which is by the edge of the sword, by being crucified, by being impaled, by being burnt, by being stoned, by being tortured, by having our government destroyed, by becoming a slave. Slavery is not against the Koran, against the law of the Koran at all. Actually, at all times, and we don't understand this in America because we, we would ask like the other day, they're talking about holy war and calling for jihad, and actually they have declared war against us. You would think, well now look, they've declared war against us, why don't we go to war against them? Well, because they declared war against us before Muhammad was dead. For thousands, for hundreds of years, over 2,500 years, the Islamic people have been at war with all of the rest of the world, with all other religions. The sixth concept, which really has become like a religious duty in one of the dogmas, is the very concept of jihad and that war is holy. Reminds me of a scripture in the book of Revelation in the 13th chapter. Interesting concept here. Those who worship the beast, who is seen here to emerge out of manifold races and nations of people having seven heads and ten horns, it says in verse 4 that these people worship the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? There's nothing like it. It's absolutely unique. It's a gigantic juggernaut, a huge power. And who is able to make war with him? Not who is like the beast in his educational programs? Who is like the beast in his urban redevelopment and his civic renewal and his gifts and grants to education and his programs for children and his programs for welfare and the infrastructure of decaying societies and bridges and viaducts and overpasses and roadways that need repair and his huge multi-story government-sponsored apartments and all that he does for people? Isn't that interesting? But the people who worship the beast do not worship him because of his altruism, or what a great governor he is, or, or his largesse, or his uh, great beneficent mercies, but as a war-making machine. Now, if you and I were to jump aboard a jet, which we could do real quickly, go down here to the Tyler Airport, transfer a DFW, and go nonstop to Vienna, and from there right on over to Amman. And by the time you go to bed tonight and wake up tomorrow, it's about 10 o'clock, you'd be in Amman, Jordan. You could walk along the streets over there and you could talk to people and ask them what they think of Saddam Hussein. And their eyes would light up and they would say, He is a great leader. He is standing up to the Americans. Oh, they would just adore him. Every day, the huge, big, there's an ancient old amphitheater in one part of Amman, I could drive to it, I don't know what part of the city is, I just know what relationship it is to the prison, which is a hideous place to drive past, and of course, the Holiday Inn, <laughs> what I say. But in any event, daily demonstrations are taking place in Amman, Jordan, 
where thousands of people meet and just talk about what a great father-like figure, what a grand old uncle, what a nice, wonderful man, what a powerful leader, what a great war maker, a great Arab, a great Islamic uh, faithful leader of the Iraqi people, what a great Muslim is Saddam Hussein. And they worship him. And in all of the countries, including, believe it or not, Kuwait, which has been savagely taken over by Saddam Hussein, in Saudi Arabia, in nations all over the Middle East, many of whom have joined under the auspices of the Arab League with the United Nations to actually send token commitments of troops to the so-called Operation Desert Shield or the UN force in Saudi Arabia, are either openly or secret admirers of Saddam Hussein, as were, of course, the Boer Dutch during World War I and World War II, when Jan Christian Smuts was, was obviously for the Germans and hoped Germany would win in both of those world wars. You may not realize, because you have never really looked at it from the point of view of an Arab growing up in an Arab land. You see, their newspapers told them a straight scoop. So when they got up on the morning after the invasion down into uh, Kuwait, all the people in Iraq learned that it was an invasion just like Grenada, just like Panama, no different. What are we doing over there, they say? That's thousands of miles away from the United States. Why, that is right there uh, as much as, as New Mexico joins Mexico, a little province of dispute across the Rio Grande River. And these rotten people would not only not renew their loan, but they were strangling the Iraqi economy to death, the al Saba family, a lot of interlopers. That is really not even a nation. It shouldn't be a nation. It's an artificial division in the sand with a neutral zone that nobody's supposed to occupy. And this one greedy family has gotten its hands on all that oil. That's their point of view. Do you suppose that there might have been somebody who is not a member of the al Saba clique immediately beneath them, involved in oil, who doesn't have anywhere near the kind of money they have, who might have welcomed Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait? Why, the papers, the official papers in Baghdad actually told all of the citizens over there, and the school teachers took them and put them on the bulletin boards in the first and third and fifth grade classes, and told the kids as they pointed to the pointer, you see what our beloved leader Saddam Hussein has done? Why, this nasty family, the Al-Sabah, have been milking these poor Kuwaiti people, our brethren, our fellow Islamic Arabs, been squeezing them dry, been taking the oil out of the ground. They won't give us these two islands that actually block the Shah el-Arab and the Bab el-Mandab. They won't give us actually access to our own seaports. We're vulnerable to blockade. They're going to strangle us to death economically. We have fought their war for us. They would not contribute one single soldier in eight years when we lost hundreds of thousands of people fighting against Iran. And now here they are withholding aid and help from us and blockading us. We will not choose death. We're not going to choose to starve to death. We're going to choose to go in there and get that al Saba family out and release our brothers down there who are crying for us to intervene. And so they wrote out a newspaper article of how they had at the invitation of the new revolutionary government in Kuwait marched in 
to unshackle these people from these despotic leaders who were raping and pillaging and squeezing to death the Kuwaiti people. Every citizen in Iraq, with the conceivable exception of a tiny handful who may have been educated in London or in American universities, believes it. All the first graders believe it. All the second graders believe it. All the housewives believe it. All the people on the street believe it. Everybody, most of them, can't read, but even those who can't read, who have the mullahs in the mosques reading the papers to them, believe it. Many people in other Arab states also believe it. Now, what is our responsibility? I have said, and I told you a couple of weeks ago, that this is not the battle between the king of the north and the king of the south, that we do not know who is the king of the north in biblical prophecy in Matthew, I should say, uh, Daniel 11, 40-44, nor do we yet know who is the beast. I think that the current pope may, in fact, become the great false prophet of biblical prophecy, but I can't say that dogmatically because I really don't know. I won't know until that has become a fait accompli and is a past act, and then I see, in retrospect, that that's the way it worked out. I still come back to Christ's prophecies. When you shall see the abomination of desolation stand in the holy place where it ought not, let him that readeth understand, then let them which be in Judea flee to the mountains. And the correlative prophecy over in Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, that talks about a great false prophet claiming that he is God, claiming the very powers of God, sitting in a temple of God, showing that himself, himself that he is God, having the power to call down fire from heaven in the sight of them that worship the beast, which will actually fulfill the prophecy of the abomination of desolation. And only when I see that happen in Jerusalem, meaning there has got to be a coming together of the Israeli populace, the Israeli populace has got to have some kind of a dramatic religious reawakening, there's got to be at least a dedication of a temporary tabernacle, the discovery of an ancient cornerstone, the discovery of the uh, Ark of the Covenant, or something that brings about the erection of at least something that is called the Temple of God, even if it's temporary, or the building of a temple complete, and the installation of a priesthood, and the commencement of sacrifices, and then the abomination of desolation, before I will believe that the Great Tribulation has actually begun. So I've said that I believe in the long term the things that are really going to come out of this are, first of all, another deepening wound, a terrible blow to the American economy. That has already happened. It is happening, and it shall continue to happen. Secondly, a signal to the Germans who are coming together in full-fledged reunification on paper on October 3rd, and the Japanese to actually effect changes in their constitutions which will allow the deployment of German and Japanese armed forces elsewhere in the world and will allow the beginning of their military strength to measure up to their economic strength. That is also much in the news if you know where to look and if you're listening very carefully because many Americans have voiced disgust with the Japanese. We've been putting a lot of pressure on them, so they finally doubled up to about $2 billion. Their contributions, including low-interest loans and outright grants to Turkey and to Jordan's, uh, King Hussein's Jordan, and, of course, to Egypt, who are losing enormous amounts of money. The Egyptians, of course, are losing about $2 billion a year alone because of the tremendous number of workers they had in Iraq who were sending their paychecks home. Many of those are being expatriated, having to go back, and, of course, they can't send a dime out of there right now anyway. 
So it is really a gigantic can of worms. But as I said before, even the American Revolutionary War is not specifically mentioned in biblical prophecy, nor was World War I or World War II except in a shadowy type in Daniel 11, verse 21. If you look at reference there, that may be a secondary or tertiary reference to, to Adolf Hitler as a type of Antiochus Epiphanes. But so far as the war itself and whether or not Holland would be occupied and whether or not France was going to be attacked or the Benelux countries or Denmark would be occupied or Britain bombed, it isn't there anywhere. There is not a scripture in Zechariah. There's not some secret scripture over in Second Thessalonians. There's no scripture in the Bible that actually depicts every one of those wars. There is only Christ's prophecy. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Now, just since the Feast of Tabernacles last year, in fact, since November of 1989, this entire world has changed dramatically. Now, as you watch your news, repeatedly they are saying what I was saying months before the news came along and began to say it, because I knew that the instant that first hole appeared in the wall that they keep replaying endlessly on CNN, that the Cold War was over. Well, the Cold War is over. Now, look what that means. Do you have the faintest concept of the incredible number of billions upon billions of dollars commencing with the earliest experimentations in nuclear fission and the development of the hydrogen bomb, the development of SAC, our long-range strategic bomber force, beginning with the B-57s and ending, culminating in B-52s that are much older now than the pilots who fly them, with the development and research for cruise missiles, with the early, the one that we scrapped years ago, but we still have portions of it in place, and we have spy satellites that replaced it, the DW line, with every governmental program that was battled through Congress to give the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Pentagon multiple billions of dollars in military procurement that actually tapped your pocket and mine, which brought about an enormous amount of defense spending for literally decades, approximately 45 years, because of a standoff nuclear stalemate, the war which must never be fought and which cannot be won between the United States and the Soviet Union. In every event that took place globally, in the Middle East, in Korea, in Vietnam, yes, even in Grenada and in Panama, from the time of 1950 when we learned the Soviet Union had exploded its own nuclear device and had the hydrogen bomb, until just last November, there was never a conference in the Situation Room in the White House or the Pentagon or the CIA or anywhere else that had to do with shaping American foreign policy in which not one but many voices always said or lots of brains always concocted or thought up the idea, yes, but what will be the Russian response? So that every decision taken from 1950 until last November had to crank into our thinking, yes, but what will the Russians do? What will they do if we bomb Haiphong? What will they do if one of our aircraft strays over the Yalu River down here when we're fighting in, in uh, that ridiculous war in Korea? And so consequently, two times in my lifetime, and in the lifetime of many of you here, America went to war in order to, quote, send a message to an enemy. We went to war to lean on somebody. We went to war committing troops piecemeal 
on isolated fronts to tidy up lines to play king of the mountain, we went to war offering an enemy safe sanctuary, safe harbor, safe supply lines, safe resting areas, safe supply, everything. We did it in Korea, and we did it again in Vietnam. Along a parallel, which is purely a cartographer's line, along a map, a piece of paper that recognizes no known river confluences, no bays or estuaries, no prominences or mountain chains, no major cities or railway junctions, no bridges, tunnels, or anything else of any strategic or military importance, but is merely a pencil line on the map. And I cite to you the fact that more than 50% of all battle deaths in the Korean War occurred during the peace talks in Panmunjom and after those peace talks had begun. Bloody Ridge, Heartbreak Hill, every one of them, the famous battles that we remember in Korea, took place after they were talking peace in Panmunjom. You ought to read a book called Thud Ridge sometime, of those who flew the American bombers fighter bombers and, and bomber jets that had to take off from air bases clear down in Thailand and refuel on the way and were known exactly where they were going to strike because in the White House, civilians wearing neckties, sitting comfortably in their chairs, picked out the targets for the day and flashed the news to the people over there at the air base who took off and had to be careful not to stray into the wrong neighborhood. And they said that everybody, including men, women, and kids who could lie on their back with a 45 pistol, was putting bullets in the air. They only, didn't only have to bomb, uh, dodge uh, Soviet-made SAMs or surface-air missiles, but small arms fire all over that city. They couldn't bomb neutral shipping. Here was a Swedish freighter parked out there in the bay offloading materiel and supplies. There were freighters and ships from all over the world pulling into Haiphong Harbor. Those planes could fly right over there and look down, but they got to go over here someplace and attack some kind of a target they thought was efficacious. It was ridiculous, and so was Vietnam. We lost in Korea. All is exactly as it was. The North Koreans are firmly in charge and in place in North Korea. We lost in Vietnam, and of course the communists marched right on down completely consolidated the country and are in total power there. Now let me give you one of the most frightening things I've heard on the news in the last week. That we'd better pray, maybe as Christians and Americans, doesn't happen again. Because if it does, it will be just about the final nail in our military coffin. I have heard it propounded, and it actually is implicit in George Bush's own statements in the last week. He said, I just want Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. That would be the worst thing that could happen to our country and to the world. Let me portray it to you in two ways. Number one, if he simply decides to back off in return for certain concessions involving access to the Kuwaiti oil fields, which we might be willing to give him, it would be a disaster because it would leave him in power. It would leave him an enormously heightened income, it would leave him with all of his chemical and other factories intact, and it would leave him with whatever progress they have made on that nuclear facility the Israelis bombed clear back nine years ago. You can do an awful lot in nine years with the kind of money the Iraqis have, and that is to build an atomic bomb. Now if, and you know we created the and a lot of these other things like Navy SEALs and some of the early troops that were sent over there airlifted real quickly, if we were to do what the Joint Chiefs of Staff call a surgical strike, it would be one of the worst things we could ever imagine.
we would be doing it all over again. A limited war for limited objectives, offering an enemy safe haven, safe sanctuary, safe supply, a line in the sand. Yes, that's what we've drawn, a line in the sand. Are we going to draw another one? Right at the border of Kuwait. If we should send a message to Saddam Hussein at the very same time we attack only those Iraqi forces inside Kuwait, it would be an unmitigated disaster of proportions that you can't begin to imagine. And Saddam Hussein would win. If you got the faintest idea of what you would do if you had a forty-five pistol, and you were going to go out here in the field and fire against ten men, all of them armed with a forty-five pistol? How would you feel? Victorious? How would you feel when the newspaper writers and the TV cameras came to you? You'd probably say, oh, I'm, I'm feeling like chicken, some of them. Boy, I'm going to get them. I'll win. You watch. I'm a good shot. Maybe you only got nine bullets in your clip. We have sent a force over there that is roughly ten percent of the size of Saddam Hussein's army. That force is multilingual, multinational, a lot of people bivouacked in separate areas under no unified command who would absolutely resist any unified command, most of whom resent the United States of America, including Bangladesh, Egyptian, and Syrian troops, and Turkish troops now on their way, who are bivouacked in the sands of Saudi Arabia. And our armed forces are already making a bad name for themselves in Saudi Arabian society. Like we always do, Bob Hope or his gang or some of them went over there the other day and they danced for the troops. Well, they were outraged in Saudi Arabia because they don't like dancing. Their religion says moving your body like that is sexy. And you're not supposed to do that. You cloak women from here down. You don't even let them see that much of an ankle. Or an Arab man just goes crazy. You know, he just, just really just can't control him. It's unbelievable. So they weren't going to have any more of that. No more of this dancing. No more entertaining the troops. And the men in the desert, of course, are not allowed to go to town because there isn't any such thing as a bar. Every time a scare happened in Saudi Arabia, the Americans would rush out into the desert with their private horde and they'd go smashing bottles and throwing them out in the desert. Vodka, brandy, whiskey. They're getting rid of every drop of alcohol that they'd smuggled in there because if they're found with it, they go to jail or they get killed. It's against their religion, against their law. I do say that those of you who have a ho-hum attitude about what is happening in the Gulf are very strange people indeed. And I, I would like to understand more about you. Because from what I see and from my perspective, and what I read, what I watch on television every single day, I think this world is trembling on the verge of a gigantic conflagration which could ignite over there that could wipe out tens of thousands of our young men and women. I think the United States could get the biggest bloody nose we've ever had. And I'm not at all positive that we will win. Because I've got to back off and quit viewing this as Garner Ted Armstrong, born in Oregon, USA. Wave the flag. Yay, Uncle Sam. Let's go take care of Saddam Hussein. No matter my desires, my feelings, which are natural and innate and built in me as a patriotic American, I've got to look at it from God's point of view and from the perspective of history and the perspective of prophecy and what might be a likely scenario. Now the worst case scenario I think I have painted to you before. 
And that is that if we were to attack as a result of some extreme provocation, you wonder what that would be. One person already died allegedly of a heart attack. Well, your heart would probably fail you with a 9mm round through it too. Who knows exactly how his heart attacked him over there. We don't know. Whether the body is only going to, ever going to be given back, we don't know that either. But when embassies are raided and diplomatic people are actually arrested, when people are taken hostage in the tens of thousands, when little children are frightened and abused openly on television, a little kid like this, this is always a defensive gesture, by the way, in a child, stand there like this, and then he kind of half jerked off his feet when Saddam Hussein grabs him and hauls him over there. That one poor little kid had his head tousled by practically everybody. Saddam Hussein, Jesse Jackson, probably have his head tousled by George Bush when he, well, he won't come back here, he's a British kid, I understand. But here Saddam Hussein is trying to portray himself as everybody's favorite uncle and has his little children there who obviously are afraid of him. His parents have tried to warn him, now don't do anything to offend him. The man's like an ogre. If he were to actually lash out at Israel, and we've been hearing lately that he does have IRBMs, he's got Russian scuds, he's got cruise missiles, He's got handheld anti-tank and anti-aircraft weapons. He's got the most sophisticated weapons and the most sophisticated armories of all the world that have been pouring in there. The French and the Russians and the Americans know how to make super sophisticated weapons. And he's got them. And he's got far more than we've got. We've got a few in comparison to his many. 5,500 tanks against a tiny tank brigade. All of a sudden we're happy because the so-called desert rats from Britain are going over there. Well, it was their grandfathers and fathers that were the desert rats that fought in North Africa. These young kids are not tried. They're not tested. I don't know whether or not their tanks are superior to the latest Russian models, and I doubt very much if ours are. We're depending upon our Air Force, and that's the whole trouble. Our government is trying to play God and is trying to pretend with alacrity that we are still of empire status. But America is not an empire, and America has no mercenaries. We do not have hired armies of illiterate Carthaginians who can go fight our wars on distant fronts. We've got kids from Bullard and White House and Ark and Tyler and South Fork and Denver and Eugene and New York. Like the restaurant in Colorado I saw the other day that had a little card when you checked out of the check stand and gave the name and the address of a PFC who was over there suggesting that the people go by, jot it down, and write him a letter because he's lonesome. It was opined by someone this past week that had television existed during the time of the Civil War, America would be two nations and not one. Because after the first few battles, if all of our citizens had seen how unspeakably bloody was that war, they would have insisted that it stop. You and I well remember seeing some of the bloodiest sights that we can imagine at dinner time when 5 and 5.30 news came on during the Vietnam War back in the 1970s. They talked about the war that was fought on television. If you think that did not have a great deal to do with the massive anti-war demonstrations when at one time there were 65 American cities in flames. And as an actual statistical fact, in 1965 and a little bit later, there were more soldiers, most of them reservists, who were actually on active duty in confrontation with guns leveled at American citizens in the United States 
than there were on the front lines facing gooks and what they called slope heads in Vietnam. Sixty-five American cities were in revolt against that what we call unjust, immoral, and illegal war. I believe we are living in very, very dangerous times, and I believe the biblical prophecy does not say one word about it except in a general statement of Jesus Christ in Matthew 24, when you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. Then he says, See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. And on the other hand, he said that we must be like men waiting for the appearance of our eternal Lord. And he also says in the 25th chapter of the book of, of uh, Matthew, and I want to turn to that in conclusion, that fully 50% of the church is going to be sound asleep. The only great prophecy that is to be fulfilled right now at this time is Matthew 24:14, and the prophecy that has to do with the commission of the church of preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God as a witness and a warning to all the world, and then shall the end come. And notwithstanding claims to the contrary, the gospel has not been preached to China. It has not been preached to India or Bangladesh. It has not been preached to almost all, 99.4% of Africa. It has not been preached to about 75% of the United States of America. It has not been preached to almost 90-some percent of Great Britain. It has not been preached to 90-some percent of the Dutch and the Belgians and the Poles. It has never been preached in any power whatsoever to Eastern Europe, and it has virtually never dented the Soviet Union. I doubt if one person out of one million has ever heard it in China or in Japan. Do we think the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached to all the world as a witness and that our work is over? There are writings which had said that the work is virtually over, that a luncheon meeting with 30 or 40 people in China where they speak more than 100 dialects, talking about a strong hand from someplace, was sufficient to be a gospel warning. But the Bible very strongly implies that unless you hear a warning, and then you consciously reject it, that the watchman has not done his job. The watchman says, it says to the watchman, the commission to him is, that the blood of people who are victimized by the great tribulation and the coming day of the Lord will be directly on the head of the watchman if he does not warn, if he does not shout a message and try to save as many as he possibly can. That means they've got to hear the message and understand it. If somebody's house is on fire and you stand outside and yell, Hey! What are they going to do? I don't know. They may look out the window and try to shut you up. They may take a shot at you with a rifle and they call the police. Well, what I'm saying is you'd probably say fire, wouldn't you? Your house is on fire. You'd probably try to get in there and save them if you possibly could. There must be conscious warning and there must be conscious rejection. Chapter 25, verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, an obvious symbol of the Holy Spirit of God. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps, while the bridegroom tarried. Isn't it interesting that scripture after scripture in the Bible seems to imply that the bridegroom is going to appear to tarry, and that from the point of view or the perspective of the virgins, who represent 100% of God's true church, 
it will seem like it is way off somewhere. It's very far away. There are those who are now trotting out the Jewish calendar that are beginning to wonder whether we've got another 250 years before 6,000 years are up. There are leaders of churches who should be out in the forefront of a witness and warning message to the United States, who should be to the point now that they could have real clout, who should be actually finding their way in interviews with senators and members of the House of Representatives and probably should have sat down long since with members of the cabinet and who knows, the president himself because that organization's leader sat down with emperors and with dictators and with despots and presidents and premiers and prime ministers and the heads of the act at the various levels of government in nations all over this world and was received by dozens of them, including Prince Charles of Britain. But instead they are saying, no, we don't believe that German reunification is any real significant thing in biblical prophecy or is, is something that signals that we're nearing the time of the end. Isn't that interesting? It says here, While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. Seems to imply that maybe he will tarry a little while, but apparently only long enough to give those who are innately asleep anyway time to prove exactly what kind of Christians they are. They all slumbered and slept. Interesting language, isn't it? All of them, 100% of them, slumbered and slept. Not just the half without enough oil. Everybody's got to sleep sometime. This seems to say that the whole church is in a sleepy, slumbering state at the time when everything comes crashing down. And at midnight, and of course that's just when your sleep is the deepest and you least expect it, there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom comes, not at 8 or 9 or 10 in the morning or 11 the next morning, but at midnight, go you out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose, adjusted the wicks and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go you rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgin, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I do not know who you are. Watch, therefore, for you know not, you do not know, the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. And Jesus said in Luke 21:36, Watch you therefore and pray always that you might be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. As I said a couple of weeks ago, and it's dragged on and it may drag on clear on up to or through the Feast of Tabernacles, I don't know how long, but sometime, somewhere, a spark may be struck that will actually plunge the entire Gulf region into a real conflagration. It may mean that Saddam Hussein will unleash an attack against Israel with chemical or biological weapons, which may result in an Israeli nuclear strike against Baghdad. We are living in a time where it is a potential that between now and a couple of weeks from now, five million people could die. That's the day in which we live. So if you're asleep, why are you? Why are you not awake? Why are you not alert? Why are you not aware? Why are you not taking it seriously? 
Why are you not viewing it from God's perspective instead of merely the perspective that the media would like you to adopt, that of being just one more subject out here to a massive avalanche of propaganda, primetime news, everybody with a mic and a camera rushing over there to interview everybody they can, squeezing the last little bit of pathos out of every potential event, real or imagined, in that desert, interviewing every PFC or sergeant they can get a microphone in front of or his parents back home so we fight the battle on American television. Are we just about like that little first grader who had her sign upside down, who was so propagandized she was going to demonstrate out in front of the American embassy, doesn't know what America is, doesn't know where it is, doesn't know anything about it, doesn't know what those English words mean, doesn't even know why she is in that street. Are we that uninformed? Are we that unaware? We must not be. Because I'm of the opinion that if we don't do it, Almighty God is going to raise up somebody else to get the job done. And I do not see at this moment anybody else who is doing that job. It appears to me that at the very time the church should be in the forefront of the strongest, most powerful witness and warning in all of our history, that the bulk of the church is pulling back from a witness and a warning message and is spreading Protestant pablum, family relations, nice Christian principles, and so on, but is not warning the United States of America of what is going to come. Well, I feel that we need to step up our efforts, so I'm going to commission immediately another issue of Watch Magazine to be done. We're going to be hard at work on that between now and the time immediately after the Feast of Tabernacles. It may be December or even January before we can come up with a completed issue. We're totally out except for file copies that I one we did last year. And it is going to cost some money. We're trying to save a great deal of money, of course, for television and other purposes by being only in the monthly format with our newsprint tabloid newspaper called the International News. But I think it's time for another real powerful a magazine with this Middle Eastern situation highlighted in the pictures, the illustrations, the articles in it, and Germany, the United States of Europe, all of Eastern Europe out from behind the Iron Curtain, the entire perspective that has changed in the world since November just one year ago. Let's keep on doing the work of the watchman and not go to sleep.